Father, we pray and ask that uh, this word that we've read this morning, uh, you'd bless it to us and speak to us through it uh, that we might be strengthened to go out into this week and help us to understand what's going on, help us to see how we might see ourselves in this too. In Jesus' name, amen. I've never lived in a place that's been directly impacted by uh, war. I suspect many of uh, people in my generation have had the privilege of, I guess, avoiding that, but I know people in this room have been there and they've, they've, they've lived that life. They've been in those spaces. The imagery that's all throughout this chapter and a bit that we read this morning is all about war and the clash of countries in conflict. You see words there jump out at you like kings and chariots and commanders and marching, which may tell you something about the world into which Micah was riding. These were turbulent times for everybody in that place, particularly if you're a small nation or if you're a city-state in Mesopotamia around the 6th to 8th century, like Israel was. And for you geography people out there, we're talking about the area in Iraq, Iran, uh, Turkey, Syria, that sort of, that was the base of the Assyrian Empire. And they pushed out from there into the whole region. So that was the place and the time that prophets like Micah spoke into, 6th to 8th century Mesopotamia. Now, a little bit of history helps to understand what um, Micah's left for us here. Uh, The military superpower of the day was a nation called Assyria who crushed every opposing army that came at them, and they were looking to expand. Smaller nations across Mesopotamia were either getting squished one by one as this threat from the north was pushing down, and some of them were allying with their neighbours, and basically it just meant they got squished together. Nothing was stopping Assyria. Even the northern half of the kingdom of Israel, by this time of Micah's writing, was already a casualty in this Assyrian conflict. Because at one point, the king of Israel rebelled against the king of Assyria, and this king of Assyria didn't like that at all, and smushed them into oblivion. For all intents and purposes, about, what, five-sixths of Israel was already decimated, never to return. They stopped existing. No survivors. Only the southern states of Israel were left. Those few tribes who made up the kingdom of Judah down in the south, under a separate king, and probably furthest away from Assyria. Now, Micah's a prophet in the south, and he's writing, speaking to these remaining Israelis. And in this, uh, these chapters, he mentions Assyria. He mentions Babylon. Uh, Assyria was the current military powerhouse, And in a few generations, it would be the Babylonians' turn to take control. And Micah, along with the rest of Mesopotamia, gets caught in this, I suppose it's this generation after generation of mess. As one empire gives way to another, lots of blood gets spilled. First Assyria, then Babylon, then Persia comes through. In this constantly war-torn region, which in many ways is still conflicted. But at the time of writing, Assyria has done its damage to the north, and Babylon had yet to rear its strength. And the prophet is speaking about what's to come. And what he says here in this chapter is pretty grim, if if you're following with us from where we started off in chapter 4. Micah prophesies war and exile for his people. Look at Micah uh, 4, starting at verse 9, which is where we uh, started the readings today. It says this, 
Why do you now cry aloud? Have you no king? Has your ruler perished? It's like pain seizes you like that of a woman in labor. Writhe in agony, daughter Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you must leave the city to camp in the open field. You will go to Babylon. Have you no king? Have you no ruler? And that's telling, because the good thing about a king is that they come with an army. That's the reason to have a king. But if the ruler has perished, then it really is game over for you. You will go into exile. That's what happens when you lose a war. That's what they do to you after they crush your army and they take everything valuable from your cities and from your land. After that, they didn't go and execute all the civilians. That'd be a waste. What they'll do is they take all the farmers and all the tradespeople and all the civilians and they'll take everyone back into the country that defeated them, to Assyria, into Babylon, to increase the population, increase the workforce over there. And you're not going to necessarily be with people who are going to speak the same language as you because they'd mix everyone who they captured. And Assyria captured everybody. As they relocated them into this, I guess, forced multiculturalism. And so the exile, what you do is you learn a new language. You learn a new culture. You adopt a new way of being, a whole new identity if you're going to survive. And for Israel, the real threat of exile is that you leave behind your God as your culture becomes extinct and you assimilate with the new country that you're a part of. And exile is on the cards. That's what he talks about here. You will go to Babylon, says Micah. But it's not all bad news. There's hope. Verse 10, uh, the second half of verse 10. I'll read from the beginning. Writhe in agony, daughter Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you must leave the city to camp in the open field. You will go to Babylon. There you'll be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you out of the hand of your enemies. See that turnaround there? And that turnaround in the mood of this chapter continues in verses 11, 12, and 13 to end off this chapter, where it seems like what you see there is the enemies of Israel gathering around to celebrate the fall of Israel. But there's a twist. Verse 11. But now many nations are gathered against you. They say, let it be defiled. Let our eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Rise and thresh, daughter Zion. For I will give you horns of iron. I'll give you hooves of bronze. And you will break to pieces many nations. You will devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord, their wealth uh, to the Lord of all the earth. The name Zion comes up a few times there. Zion was the name of the hill that Jerusalem was built on, so the references to that are about this city of God that it seems God is using as bait in this sort of trap. They're gathered fairly maliciously, it seems, to, to, to gloat and to see Jerusalem fall, but verse 12 suggests that it's God who's actually gathering these nations together. God is using their malicious intent to draw these people in, these nations who, who would mock God's people, and he's brought them there to have Israel turn around and destroy them. It's like a group of matadors surrounding a, a bull that's on his last legs. 
But then the bull turns around as God enables it, given iron horns and bronze hooves and rips them to pieces. It's an interesting image here, and it begs the question, how and when does this happen? Has it happened? Did this actually happen for Israel in their history? And what would the original recipients have thought of this? See, maybe this is a reference to the incident recorded in uh, 2 Chronicles 32, where the king of Assyria eventually will march his massive army right to the gates of Jerusalem, intending to sack the place. By this time, he's already destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, and now he's approaching the capital of the southern kingdom in Jerusalem. And Assyria's king rather arrogantly sends a message in earshot of the inhabitants of Jerusalem as he's besieging the whole place. He's surrounded the place and he gets a Hebrew speaker uh, to, to translate this so that people on the wall can hear. And the king of, uh, king of Assyria says, On what are you basing your confidence? Do you not know what I have done to all the peoples of all the other lands? Were the gods of those nations ever able to deliver their land from my hand? Who of all these gods of these nations has been able to save his people from me? How then can your God deliver you? And on and on he goes. And I'll read to you what the people in Jerusalem did in response. And so I'll read 2 Chronicles 32, verse 20. King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, cried out in prayer to heaven about this. And the Lord sent an angel who annihilated all the fighting men and the commanders and the officials, officers in the camp of the Assyrian king. And so he withdrew to his own land in disgrace. And when he went into the temple of his God, some of his own sons, his own flesh and blood, cut him down with a sword. And that's the biblical account. The Assyrian account of this incident is also quite interesting. It's a lot more flattering to their king, which is what you'd expect. Uh, the inscriptions you find from Assyria at the time that we have left they're all pretty much boasting of one kind of victory or another, of the Assyrian kings. And there's a prism preserved in a US university uh, from the king of Assyria writing about this incident. And in part, he says, As to Hezekiah the Jew, he did not submit to my yoke. And the striking thing there is that there's no claim from him that he captured Jerusalem, like he boasted about when he's captured every other city. There's this little record that, no, Hezekiah the Jew did not submit to me. And according to the Assyrian records, which confirms the biblical record, it was the king's sons who orchestrated his assassination in his temple, in his God's temple. And so the optimism at the end of Micah chapter 4 might be referring to that incident that happens a few generations on. Or perhaps it was something else. It could even be a foreshadowing of Jesus on the cross. But like the verses before, it seems that out of strife, there is again hope. Chapter 5, verse 1, the start of our reading this morning, um, asks this question, have you no king? Has your ruler perished? And I think chapter 5, verse 1 answers this. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Epaphra, though you are small amongst the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. 
Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. And the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And so chapter 5 begins, in strife but also in hope. Have you no king? Well, here's the answer. A king is coming. Bethlehem, out of you will come a ruler whose origins are from of old. God is sending someone who will come to shepherd his flock, a king who will bring peace, which is the dream of anyone living through a time of conflict, peace. Through this son, this promised king, this Messiah who would come in the strength and the majesty of the name of the Lord. But until then, until this son is born, they wait. They're struck. Jerusalem will go under siege. They will go to Babylon. Until, until this Messiah comes. Do you see now why when Jesus comes on the scene in the power of God and he starts doing the miraculous things that he does and he goes about the way he does with authority, do you see why it's such a big deal and why the big question that comes to Jesus again and again from everyone who's around, they ask him, are you the Christ? Are you the king who was to come? Because they've waited and waited 800 plus years since Micah. And when Jesus replies, I am the good shepherd, and he says things like the kingdom of God is near and has now come, do you get why there was such an excitement about him amongst the Jews of the time? Do you know such anticipation as he walks into Jerusalem that final time and the streets are lined with people shouting, Hosanna, praise God, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the king of Israel. Because they were sick to death of the Babylons and the Assyrians and the Persians and the Romans of the world who would come and set up their empires and destroy. Now Micah tells you what this king will mean for Israel. Verse 5, chapter 5, verse 5. And he will be our peace, says Micah. When the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses, we will raise against them seven shepherds, even eight commanders, who will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod, another name for Assyria, with drawn sword. He will deliver us from the Assyrians when they invade our land and march across our borders. The remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for anyone or depend on man. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion amongst the flock of sheep, which mauls and mangles as it goes, and no one can rescue. Your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies, and all your foes will be destroyed. Do you see in these last couple of verses, especially how even Israel's experience of exile, which Mike has already told them, you will go into exile, but this experience of exile is turned around. Here they're not, they're amongst the people, but they're not 
poor refugees, and they're not displaced survivors. So much more than that. In verse 7, they are a source of blessing. They are like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass. Or even if the blessing motif is not intended, what's emphasized is that they've been put where they are, they've been scattered amongst the nations, and it's God who's assigned them to that place for a purpose. In chapter 5, verse 8, the imagery intensifies significantly. This time, they're not the dew on the grass, they're amongst the people, but here, they're likened to be a strong and powerful lion in a flock of sheep. And the sheep don't stand a chance. The lion is victorious, and all its foes are destroyed. The, the final verse there is like the final sort of scene of a boxing match where you have one victor with their hands raised because of this coming of the promised king. And it looks like it's not just those on the outside, those enemies outside who are going to be defeated. The enemy within is also going to be dealt with. If you keep reading, look at verse 10. Micah 5, verse 10. In that day, declares the Lord, I will destroy your horses from among you and demolish your chariots. It will I will destroy the cities of your land and tear down all your strongholds. I will destroy your witchcraft and you will no longer cast spells. I will destroy your idols and your sacred stones from among you. You will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will uproot from among you your Asherah poles, when I demolish your cities, I will take vengeance in anger and wrath on the nations that have not obeyed me. Now that sounds a little bit odd. Why would you destroy your own horses and chariots and cities? Why would this be good news until you read maybe verse 13, which could be the key to it all? I will destroy your idols, says God. He's going to bring an end to their idolatry when this promised king comes. And he's going to bring an end to Israel's dependence on things that are not God. And I suppose that is the temptation. When the pressure's on, when the enemy is at the door and knocking on your gates, who wouldn't be tempted to rely on your horses and your chariots and your walls then? But what God wants of his people is that they rely on Him, that they worship Him, they esteem Him above all things, not their horses or their chariots or their cities or their strongholds, and certainly not looking for alliances from the other nations or for help from superstitious dabbling in the spiritual realm, seeking after powers that are not Him. And so what this promised King will bring is an end to their idolatry. And there's judgment there, even as he brings about his peace. Now, we read these big promises, and you understand, you, you've read this, and you, you have to see how this is massive for a nation in trouble. They're receiving such optimistic words about a king who'll be their peace. But this king is such a long, long way away from their reality. And I kind of wonder how Micah's original audience, those Jews living in the southern kingdom of Judah, I wonder how they would have received these words and made sense of it when, when Micah spoke these things to them. Now, we know they took him seriously. 
And it's obvious to us because we have this prophet's words preserved for us. The Jews kept it and kept these words intact for us, which means they took Micah's words to heart. But how were they supposed to live out the optimism and hope that's in this chapter when so many of them, they're living in war-torn Mesopotamia and they and their children and their grandchildren are going into exile as losers? They'll lose this war. It's historically very difficult to swallow unless you look forward. Much, much more forward. God did eventually deliver Israel from the exile in Babylon. But even then, even when they returned to their land, that restoration when they got to return was nowhere near the scale and the scope of what's described here in Micah chapter 5. And they'd have to wait centuries, literally centuries before Jesus arrives on the scene to take on the mantle of the Christ, this Messiah, this ruler whose origins are from of old. And even then, what Jesus achieves, you have to interpret victory in very different terms. The language of Micah seems to describe a very concrete military political victory. And there were plenty of Jews in Jesus' day who were holding on to that sort of dream. There was a faction of Jews called the Zealots, uh, who unlike the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Zealots were activists. They were all about revolution and insurrection, kicking out the Romans to establish their own Israeli empire by force. Uh, You hear about, if you look at the Jewish history, there were times when they actually uh, managed to do that in various cities around Rome. They, they kicked out the Roman powers that be and they held these little strongholds. The zealots were barking up the wrong tree. Because Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. He didn't come to build an empire or to an army to take the world by storm. The peace he wins is ultimately a peace between sinful people and the God that they've turned their backs on. The fight, as the Apostle Paul puts it, is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of the evil in the heavenly realms. And the victory our king wins isn't over something as inconsequential as the Assyrian Empire. No, we're told Jesus' victory is over sin and death, once for all, as he dies for our sin and is raised to life again. Now, would Micah's original audience have known all that? Probably not. From where they sit in history, how were they supposed to know how it would all pan out? It's impossible for them. But what they did have was a word from God. The promise that a saviour would come. And the response of faith that this this word called for was that they would hold on to this hope. He would be our peace. Whatever happens however long it takes for God to come good on his word. He will be our peace. When the Assyrians invade our land, when they march through our fortresses, when they cross our borders, when we're taken into Babylon, the response of faith is one of hope. And a refusal then to turn to idols and the things that are not God to plug the gap in our insecurities. 
And that is not too far from where we sit, I think, on this side of history. Because as Vic was saying before, as he introed that one of those songs, we too are waiting for God's word to come good. We too are waiting for our Savior to come back. And we don't know if it's going to be in our lifetime. But the promise is that he will be our peace. I don't know what pressures you're under right now and what insecurities are knocking at your gates and threatening to undo you. What I do know is that for all of us, when we're in a bind and when the pressure's on, I know that familiar temptation to resort to just about anything other than God and what he would have from us, what he would have us do. And when we give in, that's idolatry. When we put something else that's not God in God's place. What you depend on to see you through when times are tough tells you a whole lot about who you are. And so perhaps right now, you are going through some of the hardest things that you've ever had to go through. This season might be hell. Will you walk God's way? Even now. Even when you feel like they're camped all around you to destroy you. When you can't see any hope. Would you hold on to his word? Would you walk humbly with him? In righteousness. And integrity. And in hope. That, I think, is the challenge that Micah 5 puts before us. Amen. Let me lead us in prayer.